Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'd like to welcome you to episode 357 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions, your one-stop shop for all compliance-related services. Today, I take things in a little bit different direction as I'm interviewed by Jonathan Armstrong. Jonathan is a partner at Quarterly Compliance in London and I recently had the opportunity to travel to London to speak a couple of times at events in London and had the chance to sit down with Jonathan where he interviewed me. So it was a ton of fun. I uh, enjoyed being interviewed and Jonathan is an excellent uh, moderator. So we had a very interesting discussion on the Paradise Papers and the recent uh, corruption crackdown by the Saudi Arabian government. We explore what these mean for the compliance practitioner. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jonathan Armstrong from Cordry, the specialist compliance law firm. And I'm really happy to say that Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, is visiting us all the way from Houston today. And it's it's a, a really interesting week in compliance circles, Tom, because we've got the next series of leaks from uh, the Paradise Papers, you know, following the Panama Papers and shining the light on some behaviors of corporations and individuals. And at the same time, we've got almost regime change disguised as a corruption investigation in in Saudi Arabia. Is that a fair characterization? What are your thoughts on that? And, it, and the perception is, at least from the news that we're hearing on this side of the Atlantic, is that there are some fairly major U.S. corporations, Apple have already been named, who are using, let's just say, innovative structures to manage their operations around the world. Is that something that's going to come under more scrutiny going forward? Uh, I certainly think it is. Uh, we should emphasize uh, at the outset, this is not tax avoidance, this is tax evasion, which certainly in the United States law is legal and mm -hmm. probably under many other jurisdictions as well. So this is a situation where uh, U.S. companies and U.S. high net worth individuals and indeed other countries, excuse me, other companies from other countries uh, are utilizing uh, tax havens to uh, reduce their tax rate, to offshore money, bylaws in place which may in areas which may be more friendly to corporations. This has been going on for a long time. This, I think, is different than the Panama Papers because in many ways what we've seen so far is uh, legal tax evasion strategies uh, by companies. Having said all of that, the reputational fallout may be much worse than any uh, criminal sanctions or penalties that any government might levy on a company who engaged in tax um, avoidance. So uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what the reputational fallout for these companies, and you specifically named Apple, they're the most prominent one and the one that everyone is focused on, but here we are 48 hours into it, and um, lots of persons and companies have been named. Yeah, and, and you're right to say that, that nobody's suggesting any criminality, and in fact, Apple in their defense would say they're the world's largest taxpayer. But in terms, if I'm a compliance professional, has my job just got harder as well? If I'm looking at things like you know your client, if I'm looking at due diligence, I'm presumably going to have to start and look through 
the Panama Papers that I'm already looking through, and I'm going to have to look through the Paradise Papers now as well, aren't I, and do a search on the counterparties that I'm dealing with? Uh, absolutely, and that's uh, you're absolutely right. It's going to require uh, much more diligence on the part of the compliance practitioner to know your counterparty, whether that counterparty is a third-party sales agent coming into a relationship on the sales side, whether it's a vendor through the supply chain, or whether it's a potential business venture partner, joint venture partner, strategic partner, teaming alliance partner, whatever the uh, relationship is, because the blowback to you uh, may be so great because of the reputational risk that it's not worth uh, the damage to you. Uh, at that point, that is one issue that we don't know at this point. And I would also say that the entire compliance regime within a company is going to be more greatly pressure tested now because board of directors need to ask some significant questions around tax compliance. Uh, it's not can we do it, but should we do it? Mm. And if we are going to be ridiculed in the international press uh, to the point where it negatively impacts our stock price or uh, there are regulatory changes specifically targeting us, is that a risk we want to take for uh, literally saving pennies on the dollars or pennies on the pounds for a few years by moving to a tax haven? That's an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, maybe about 10 years ago, I was with a law firm and we did a piece of work trying to look at where compliance was headed. And we engaged with various people, including a well-known futurist who sat us down and said, you know, in 10 years' time, the compliance department will have gone in major corporations and will have been replaced with the department of the moral compass. So this would be a department that would decide that even if something was legally correct, morally it wasn't defensible. Is this the start of the rise of the department of the moral compass? You know, I would never accuse the British of being mushy about feelings. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I think there's actually a business reason for this, and I think there's a quantitative analysis you can put on it, and it's simply risk-based. So take the concepts that we use every day with our clients. What is your potential risk? If your potential risk is a regulatory breach or violation of law, such as the UK Bribery Act or the United States Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, then your risk management solution would become higher. Uh, and then it becomes a cost-benefit analysis. Now we're simply asking or simply putting that same risk-based analysis on a reputational risk. And if the reputational risk of doing business with someone who uh, banks in a tax haven, who is uh, headquartered in, you name the tax haven or uh, other uh, corporate jurisdiction, is that someone, one, we want to do business with because it speaks to a, a certain business acumen, or two, is that someone that, if exposed, could come back to hurt us? So I don't see it really as a moral compass. I see it as a business issue and a quantifiable business issue, and therefore one that can be uh, risk-rated and risk-managed. Uh, so on the Saudi situation, Jonathan, the, uh, I would say it's more regime consolidation. Uh, than regime change, uh, because the changes were fostered by both the current king, um, King Salman, and uh, crown, the crown prince. So uh, maybe we can unpack uh, both of those. Uh, we don't know their relationship at this point. Nevertheless, for the compliance practitioner, for the compliance professional, indeed the compliance industry, both of those two events could be uh, really earth-shattering going forward. We had or a anti-corruption campaign or perhaps something else. Nevertheless, for the compliance practitioner, I think it's very significant because it centers around anti-corruption. 
So the king of Saudi Arabia established an anti-corruption commission, and certain uh, multiple, I think 50 Saudi princes were, if not arrested, detained, and they are now being held under house arrest at a uh, very posh hotel in Riyadh. But for the compliance practitioner, this, this brings up, we can leave the political issues aside uh, at this point because there are significant implications for every compliance practitioner in every company that does business either in Saudi Arabia or with Saudi Arabia. So both inbound and outbound. Um, the best example we could point to as an analogy would be the Chinese anti-corruption uh, crackdown, which has happened over the past few years. But here, uh, think about the number of U.S. and U.K. companies doing business in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Obviously, I come from the energy capital of the world. That's a major player. So we do lots of business in Saudi Arabia in, in multiple uh, ways. Um, but then think about the wealth of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia that's made available for investment literally across the globe. Mm. And uh, we had uh, one uh, extremely high net worth individual. I think he's worth $18 billion. Prince Walid. Prince Awalid. Awalid. Uh, he was arrested, and he is a uh, serial uh, investor in Silicon Valley. Um, and if any of these persons are convicted of the crime of corruption, they automatically go on a specially designated persons list or bad guy list or some list that would prevent you from doing business with them or at least raise a red flag. Well, that red flag is raised now. And if you're doing business, if you've used any of those persons as a local agent, and in Saudi Arabia, you must have a local agent, you must have a joint venture partner, uh, been in the energy industry, and a joint venture partner with several, several Saudi princes over the years, my companies have uh, to do business, uh, all of those need to be reviewed now. If, if you're in business in Saudi Arabia, you need to tell your clients, and they need to review those relationships now to see if one of any of those persons have been arrested, but now also to take a look at <clears throat> all payments that were made. Uh, anything that looks suspicious or funny needs to be absolutely investigated. But also if you've been on the receiving end of money, and here we would point to the uh, Malaysian 1MDB scandal. In the United States, a fair amount of money was invested. The famous movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, was funded largely on monies from J. Lo, the uh, alleged head of MDB, 1MDB, mm -hmm. And uh, that company had to give back uh, some of their profits from that movie. Uh, there have been numerous for forfeiture lawsuits filed in the United States around monies uh, that were allegedly purloined from the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund. So that brings into account uh, any monies that would have come inbound to both the United States and certainly in the United Kingdom as well. And so how, how deep do you have to go in terms of that work? You know, if you look at Prince Al-Walid, for example, I know that he uh, did have an interest in the Plaza Hotel in, in New York, which he disposed of, the Savoy Hotel here in London, Lyft. Uh, he famously intervened, uh, allegedly, uh, in Apple when it had its issue over not dealing with bloggers correctly and told them, uh, allegedly, to sort it out and, and make sure that their customer focus was better. And, and we all know the Apple journey after that. So how how deep do you have to go, given that this this isn't necessarily you dealing with Saudi entities in Saudi, do you have to look at the investments that you've got from Saudi entities in your own stock, the relationships that you have with organizations that provide 
hotel services, technology services or whatever to your corporation and are heavily invested in by Saudi entities. If a Saudi entity has invested money in a public company and they've simply bought stock and they're not controlling, you're probably on the lesser risk end of the scale. But if you've had direct investment, uh, you're going to have to determine the source of that investment monies. And if that money was derived through corruption, uh, your company could be in, in serious trouble. Uh, but also, it, it's companies doing business in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, they need to review those relationships. You need to review all payments. You need to review uh, the request of payments. You need to review the entire purview of your third-party relationship to make sure you've documented each step. Because when a regulator comes knocking, they're going to want to see how did you manage that third-party relationship. And if you do not have documentation supporting every step of the five-step process, uh, they're going to assume you didn't do anything or you didn't do it correctly. And so at this point, it would be, I would suggest, reviewing the documentation, making sure the documentation's in place, and then take, taking a deep dive to see either what happened to the money you spent in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, or if it's inbound to your company in your country, uh, how did that money get there and where did it come from? Did it come from a tax haven off the Isle of Man? Or not to pick on a UK possession, but you name the, the tax haven perhaps where money was uh, wired from, or did it come directly from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund or did it come from somewhere else? Yeah, a fascinating story. I'm sure it's gonna run and run. And uh, thank you for your thoughts on it, Tom. So do check back and watch more thoughts on some other compliance topics. Thanks for watching. My pleasure. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions on today's podcast, you can contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. If you're interested in talking to Jonathan Armstrong more about his work at Corey Compliance or GDPR or other compliance issues in the United Kingdom, please give Jonathan a shout via email at jonathan.armstrong at corderycompliance.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.